From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Minnesota is a state with a whole lot of weather news, and there's no meteorologist better known in this market than Paul Douglas. During his time at CARE 11 in the 80s and early 90s, he launched the backyard format still used today by the station and many others nationwide. He became one of the first meteorologists in the country to use graphics in his report. He also worked for a time at WBBM in Chicago, where he made the occasional appearance on the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather. Then he became Minnesota's first certified broadcast meteorologist and returned to Minnesota where he served as chief meteorologist for WCCO-TV from 1997 to 2008. Meanwhile, off-camera, he launched Earthwatch Communications, delivering weather graphics to hundreds of television stations in the United States and around the world. And then he founded Digital Cyclone, Inc., which personalized the weather forecasting experience for consumers on the web, email, and cell phones. He sold that business to Garmin Incorporated for $45 million. But he's not done, folks. Paul has three new companies. He provides a daily print and online weather service to the Star Tribune. He co-hosts WCCO's afternoon radio show with Jordana Green. And during extreme weather, you're still likely to find Paul on MSNBC or CNN. And he still finds time to volunteer, to speak publicly, and to do our little podcast. Thank you, Paul, for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks, Allison. I, I mean, do you have any downtime in your day or week or months? You know, a couple of hours and evening were I Netflix and chill. Really? Or maybe Hulu or maybe Amazon Prime or watch football. Football is one of my coping skills as we slide into the winter months. My wife and I love college football. We okay. still go back to Penn State football games. We have season tickets. That's where we met. Nice. I was a linebacker. She was a cheerleader. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> did you play any football? We had a few losing seasons. Uh, no, I did not. No, okay. No. But you're a fan. I'm a fan. Were, I'm, I'm, let's go back to college since you said that. Were you most interested in weather? Were you interested in journalism? I'm always fascinated with meteorologists because it is sort of a a strange career where you get into this science, but yet you're thinking about broadcast news in a lot of cases. What was it for you? I mean, for me, it was the weather. It was a tropical storm by the name of Agnes that flooded out our house when I was 14, uh, traumatized me, traumatized our family. And so I think kind of easing into a meteorology career was a, a coping skill for me to figure out what happened uh, why wasn't this storm better predicted? And I think a lot of people on television and even on the radio talking about weather were traumatized by something as kids, mm -hmm. a blizzard, a tornado, hmm. a flood. But at Penn State, I started doing uh, weather for radio stations from my dorm room, mm -hmm. which I do not recommend. You could hear the uh, the football players in the background. And it, it, yeah, it was not exactly broadcast quality some mornings, but... Uh, 
I got a taste of it, and I loved having a business on the side while I was attending classes. Hmm. It helped to pay my way through through college. It gave me a little bit of spending money, and I just loved having that plan B and having another outside source of income. You were always a side hustler. I guess I was <laughs> I was kind of doing the gig economy 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I think my father, you know, growing up, he always said, you know, if, if you can get paid to do something you love, just don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's like financial planners, you know, talking about your investment portfolio. Diversify, diversify. Mm-hmm. And I would make the same argument today with all of us, you know, that it's good to have a couple of options in case one of those options goes away, as it inevitably will, that you're not totally stuck. When you're in meteorology school, do they teach you how to deliver a weather report on TV? Is that part of the education? They do now. Back then, not so much. Okay. But I did radio for 11 radio stations, and I did it three times a day. There were updates, and so it taught me how to ad lib. It taught me how to think on my feet mm-hmm. and how to write. And many of those skills, you know, transferable to television. But I didn't set out to be a TV meteorologist. I was thrilled just to be on the radio, just talking about the weather, trying to make it conversational and memorable and not bore people. Trying to make every uh, update interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, um, I had an 11th grade advanced placement English teacher, Mrs. Eisenhart. And she always told us, use action words. Use action words. Yes. People judge you by how well you speak and spice up your vocabulary. And so that uh, that was good advice. After all these years doing the weather, I mean, it, it's got to, some of the words, you know, it's raining cats and dogs. It's got to get a little exhausting. Like, what's, what's your favorite way to describe weather? Or how do you keep reinventing? Well, again, I, yeah, every day is different. Every pattern is different. So it's it's hard to get bored Okay. as a meteorologist, especially in a place like Minnesota. You know, Phoenix San Diego, Honolulu. Boring, sunny, 90. I would lose my mind after, I don't know, five, six, seven years Uh uh, of boredom. But um, I don't know what they talk about out there, what time the fog will lift. But I don't know. I I think every day you have a new opportunity to get it right, Allison. The forecast and how you communicate the forecast. So there are really two parallel challenges, trying to get the weather right or at least get close. Mm -hmm. And then the words that you choose to try to describe what the atmosphere will look like tomorrow going out seven days Mm -hmm. and explaining, especially in Minnesota where everybody is an armchair meteorologist and people know their stuff here. I found a huge difference even between the Twin Cities and Chicago. Minnesotans know their weather, the terminology, the science, uh, in a way that I haven't seen anywhere else in the country. And I think it's it's a coping skill for us because we get so much weather. Right. 30, 40 days out of the year are life-threatening. <laughs> Only Siberia has more extremes than we do. Uh. So you better be up on your meteorology in Minnesota 
I guess so. Did you move here to work for Carol Evans? Yeah. Is that what brought you to town? I did. I did. And at the time, I mean, did you see this as a place that would have interesting weather? Was, was that how you looked at it or was it just a, a job out of school? You know, it's you go where the opportunities are. I was working for a cable news network in Connecticut called Satellite News Channel, and we did these news cycles every 21 minutes. It was modeled after Winds Radio in New York. Give us 21 minutes, we'll give you the world. And so every 21 minutes, we did news headlines, sports, and weather. And it was great until Ted Turner bought them and turned them off because we were apparently competition for CNN headline news. I got out before that happened, and a job opening arose at this little TV station, well, not so little, WTCN, and I had to look on a map. Remember the old paper maps? I had to dig (laughs) out a map back in 1982 and say, okay, Twin Cities, Minnesota. And of course, I had heard great things about Minnesota. Mm -hmm. I grew up rooting for the Vikings. And I went out for a job interview, and the guy at the time, the general manager, he took me to the Orion room at the top of the IDS for lunch, and I was impressed with with Minneapolis. Was it summer or winter when you came to visit? It was, uh, you know what? It was actually spring. I think it was late March, early April. And they took me to see Mary Tyler Moore's house, Lake of the Isles. Mm -hmm. And then they took me to the Byerly's in St. Louis Park. All the highlights. That clinched the deal. (laughs) I remember it's fancy. the chandelier and the carpeting and the art, and I was kind of like, I was blown away. Yeah, it's a fancy place. I grew up in the Amish country of Lancaster, PA, west of Philly, and I had never seen anything like that. So I was intrigued, and I just knew that the weather was crazy, and that I would have my hands full, and that it would be an interesting learning experience for me. So I came out, and they and they said... You know, we've got this secret weapon. We can't tell you anything more other than Ron Majors used to work in this market. And he's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And and so anyway, Paul Majors, mm-hmm. Ron's younger brother, showed up. and um, <laughs> Who you then worked with again in Chicago. Or no. no or were you on competing no. stations? I, I wish I had worked at... Uh, at Ron Major's station. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I was at, at BBM, which uh, went through a tough cycle. I mean, they if it bleeds, it leads, and they went tabloid for mm. a time, and Chicagoans never forgave them for that. Interesting. And so, yeah, you know, and I think my Chicago experience is a metaphor for my business experience and maybe a metaphor for life. You try things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they don't work. But you, that doesn't mean you don't try. Of course. You were entrepreneurial early on. What At what point did it crystallize for you? Where you're, you're working professionally in, in broadcast, you are a meteorologist. At what point did you say, I think I'm going to do this other venture? Well, in this, you know, it started with uh, at CARE or WUSA at the time. I think we were... You know, we, we switched our name around so many times. I was bored with the computer graphics I was using. Hmm. And it's amazing to me how many companies are launched because people are bored or think there's a better way, a faster way, uh, a cheaper way. 
in in the case of of my TV graphics, I was just bored. And I went to a conference, a meteorology conference, and a Japanese professor put on a presentation and he showed a video, a concept of three-dimensional weather. Allison, it looked like something Walt Disney dreamt up. I mean, it's kind of a space shuttle uh, flight through the weather, under the clouds, simulated snow and lightning. It was magical. Mm-hmm. And he got a standing ovation. Every TV meteorologist that was in the crowd stood up and clapped and cheered. And so this was not lost on me. I went up to him afterwards and I said, that was unbelievable. Can I license this for the Twin Cities, for mm-hmm. for the TV station I'm working at? And he laughed at me. He said, Paul, you need a $5 million Fujitsu supercomputer. Do you have $5 million? <laughs> Did you? And and I thought for a second, and I said, will you take a check? And he was not amused. And so he, he pissed me off, mm-hmm. okay? And so I went back to the Twin Cities thinking there has to be a way to do this for a fraction of $5 million. And the third computer programmer I went to was able to turn this crazy vision of three-dimensional weather into a reality. We leased a Silicon Graphics workstation. At the time, they cost about $30,000, $40,000. We leased one, put it in this guy's guest bedroom. And he had a full-time gig, and he would come home every evening and on the weekends and program. And after a few months, we started to make progress. And I would stop by every Thursday uh, with a whopper from Burger King, and so I'd feed him, and he'd show me what he had worked on, and that was sort of the genesis. Were you thinking about this as a separate business, or was this something you were doing for Care 11 or whatever they were called at that time? Both. I mean, I, I saw this as a potential differentiator with Care 11. I wanted to have the best computer graphics. I wanted to try to disrupt what to me had become a very boring two-dimensional uh, display. But I also saw the business potential that if CARE ultimately went for this, that there would be other TV stations. That's tricky, though. I mean, especially in the world of journalism and broadcast, they like to own their yeah. personalities. They like to own the content. I've experienced this myself. So how did you navigate that? Well, you know, when I launched this, Allison, when I launched Earthwatch, I had a, a general manager who was supportive, and uh, I offered Care 11 exclusivity. I offered all the other Gannett TV stations exclusivity. And so I figured we can work out a win-win deal here. And, and it kind of worked out that way. And it was fine for a few years. And then a new general manager came in and said, nope, we want you all to ourselves. No outside ventures. Hmm. And we want, by the way, that Star Tribune weather page that you developed back in 1991. We want to share that with all the other meteorologists. So basically, he was in my face and and I think making unreasonable demands. And, And frankly, that was... One of the main reasons why I left Channel 11, it wasn't just because I had an itch to go to Chicago. It's because, again, 
things change, management changes, sometimes the people that love you and bring you in and believe in you leave, and then you're stuck with someone new sure. and you have to navigate that new world. But but you wanted to do both. I mean, you, you... I wanted to have a business on the side. Look, it, it, the media world, and you know this, mm-hmm. it's, it's unstable. It's like being in the NFL or how I imagine being in the NHL. You might have a few good years and then you're out. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have a safety net, a plan B, a plan C, a plan D. And I also loved and continue to love the challenge of taking a vision and trying to find a way to turn that that vision into a business model that is sustainable and and growing. Sure. You know, surrounding yourself with smart people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I saw the business opportunities. And to make a long story short, after we did the deal with CARE, by the way, we debuted this, the whole three-dimensional thing, not for weather, but back during the first Iraq war. Oh. Um, there was a missile strike on one of our air bases in Dharan, and there was no video. And the producers came to me and said, hey, can you're new, your 3D thing, we don't know what the heck you're doing over there, but can it simulate a missile strike? I said, sure. And so we, we I created this little visual sequence that showed a missile striking you know, that part of the Middle East. And they were enamored. And that kind of got it off the dime. And then they launched it for for weather and allowed me to use this for the weather cast. And then we had a station in Denver and and Detroit. And uh, a few hundred stations around the world licensed this. Um, did you have to hire staff? Did oh, you yeah. invest your own money? Yeah. How, how did you navigate that since you had a demanding full-time job too? And I took some of the money uh, from my salary at CARE and plowed that into this weather graphics company. And my wife was not happy at all. Mm -hmm. Second mortgage on the house. Not happy. Um, But you saw the vision. Yeah. And and again, it's had it gone south, had had we declared bankruptcy, I I don't know. I mean, it it, – I think most – businesses, at least the ones that I've been associated with, you have that valley of death, you have that chasm where it doesn't work out exactly the way you thought it would, and you have to pivot. And in doing the pivot to a new model, you burn through money, you burn through more cash, and you run the risk of going out of business. And so it's it's by the grace of God and people a lot smarter of than me, that we were able to pivot successfully and and find a way forward. Mm-hmm. So I sold Earthwatch, didn't make a lot of money, but um, got a taste and plowed that back into the next business, which was Digital Cyclone. So when you returned to this market after your stint in Chicago and you came back to work for WCCO, at that point, was it on your own terms? You were sort of established as an entrepreneurial meteorologist did did they embrace your side businesses yeah actually they did i i sold earthwatch in uh, 1997 and you know i thought that i would come back to the twin cities i didn't come back to be on cco tv i came back 
to to run the business. Okay. I was in Chicago doing it remotely, had great people here that were running day to day. But under the heading Man Plans, God Laughs, as soon as I got back, uh, another weather company made an offer, wound up selling Earthwatch. And then CCO TV Channel 4 called up and said, hey, are you back to stay? And I said, oh, yeah. Any wanderlust has been beaten out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I got my taste. I'm coming home. And uh, and so I went to, uh, to CCO TV and, um, again, had a great 11-year run there as well. But there, every single time, at least with television, there has been potential friction because they don't want distractions. They, they want to own you mm-hmm. 100%. And I get that. I get that. But again, it wasn't like I was opening up a restaurant or, you know, selling widgets. I was trying to create weather technology that these TV stations could use. So did you start Digital Cyclone while you were at CCO or was that after? Uh, I actually started, uh, I started Digital Cyclone. Let me get my dates right here. I came back from... uh, Chicago in 97. Mm-hmm. And we started Digital Cyclone. Uh, that must have been like 98, 99 is okay. when we. And was that sort of an updated version of Earthwatch or a totally different proposition? It was a different proposition. It was let's do a better job and talk about the height of hubris. We thought we could do a better job um, predicting the weather than the National Weather Service. So we we basically, the premise was we can create a more accurate 12-hour forecast. And so we created this network. We raised some money. We raised $8 million. You had partners in this yes. going in? We, we had... Uh, we had a corporate... We had a strategic investor, Belo... Uh, one of the broadcasters uh, based in uh, the Dallas area, and they invested money. And then we had a friends and family round. My mother-in-law was an investor. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, I would encourage your listeners, um, if you're thinking of starting a business, think twice before having your mother-in-law <laughs> as an investor. It made for some very painful uh, family uh, visits sitting around the uh, But it the turned out okay. So, Paul, did you piss my money away yet? <laughs> no, Grammy, it, you, you're still whole. It's, it's going to be fine. Just hang in there with me. Stressful. But um, the bottom line is, and speaking of pivoting, we burned through all this cash trying to demonstrate that we could create a more accurate forecast. And we had 50 different computers running for the 50 biggest cities in the United States. And we could do a slightly different better job. We actually had some analytics that showed that, yeah, we could actually predict the weather slightly more accurately than NOAA could in the short term. The problem was nobody wanted to pay for it. Hmm. And, you know, that was back in the age of get big quick and, oh, you can use advertising to monetize this. And so the business model didn't work. And we pivoted. Uh, We laid off 50 out of 55 people, which talk about a bad week. Yeah. Um, And we pivoted to a new model, and that was 
Weather on cell phones. Back in 2000, 2001, flip phones, Java phones just coming onto the market. And it was dawning on the wireless carriers, the AT&Ts and Verizons, that you know, voice was going to be a commodity that the real business was in data. And so the carriers were looking for content. And we were among the first, possibly the first, to raise our hands and say, hey, what about weather? People will pay something if you can personalize the weather experience on a flip phone. I had forgotten about the days. I remember as a kid dialing up a number to get a weather report in my ear. Wow. I'm old. So No, no, so, no. I re- so this I remember a- that too. But I remember, you know, and I at one point my wife wanted to strangle me. Well, that that's a recurring theme actually <laughs> uh, for much of our marriage f- with each business. But uh, at one point I had four different phones. And I was paying for four different phones because my, my rationale was, I, well, I have to test it sure. on Sprint and I've got to test it on AT&T and, and Singular. Mm. Remember Singular? That, that was a long time ago. But anyway, um, people were intrigued that for a dollar a month, they could get Doppler radar on their phone. You don't have to wait and watch the news at five o'clock. Now you can get it anytime. Hey, you're on a tractor in the middle of the field and you're concerned about rain coming in. Just whip open your flip phone and 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 dial up MyCast. That was the name of the, the service. It was called MyCast. And people paid a buck a month. We had a pilot version. People paid $12 a month. People really like the weather. People love the weather. And it took off and it was machine revenue. And we had gross margins of about 85%. And we went from zero subscribers to about 800,000 subscribers in, in two years. Wow. And so Garmin swooped in. And I'm not sure they bought it because of the cash flow. It was, you know, they find that money in the, the seat cushions at Garmin. But I think they were intrigued with our developers. Sure. They were impressed with the programmers. Were, was it a no-brainer for you to, to sell? Yeah, because, well, for, for a number of reasons and, and something that, you know, entrepreneurs have told me over the years, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. And there is a correct time to get in and there is a correct time to get out. And if you wait too long, you can get slaughtered. So... We had, 2007, we had been hearing rumors that this guy by the name of Steve Jobs was going to release an amazing phone that would change everything, the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And we were one of four or five different weather options on these phones. It was a walled garden. And... That in and of itself made it possible for us to to ramp up that quickly with that many subscribers. The iPhone, there were rumors that it would be open to everybody, you know, right. infinite number of weather apps. And so we thought there's enough uncertainty that now is the time to take the money off the table and get a return for all our investors, all 103 investors. So it was $45 million but it was spread among 103 investors, including my dear mother-in-law, who did, did get her money back. 
Well, I'm so glad to hear that. She got a return. Yeah. I mean, it's still a good chunk of money. Uh, Was there any part of you that thought, okay, you know, I'm going to I'm going to retire to Mexico now? You know, I can't say there really was. I mean, I can't golf to save my life. I try. (laughs) Um, And I I love the intellectual challenge of launching new businesses. So, you know. 2020 hindsight, maybe I should have quit at the time. But what would I have done? I don't know. Um, instead, we we plowed most of that money, our stake, into a new business called Weather Nation. Uh, we launched a new weather channel, a national weather channel back in 2011, which is still amazingly on the air. It's being run out of Denver now, so they moved the studios. We got it launched here in Excelsior, and then they moved the primary studios out to Denver, closer to where the, the primary investors were. But Are you still involved in that company? Still involved. And they're more from a data standpoint. We our meteorologists are no longer doing updates for Weather Nation, but we power their data stream. And then there are two other businesses. What are those? Yep. So Eris Weather is our um, machine revenue business, weather data companies uh, like Boeing and Honeywell, Netflix, hmm. uh, that need API-driven weather data to make smarter decisions. They bring weather data right into their business models, right into their uh, their supply chains, And if you have a better understanding of what's coming, you can go on offense with your supply chains, your logistics, your transportation. You can save money, try to avoid problems in advance. The case of Netflix, they actually target, at least they have in the past, they target specific shows that you might want to watch based on the weather for your zip code. You're kidding. No. You are more. They have analytics, apparently, that shows that the weather has a role in what you might be more interested in watching at a given time. That's so, amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so we're blown away by all of the different use cases. But roughly, weather directly impacts about a third of America's GDP. Mm-hmm. Directly impacts. And so smart companies are pulling data in. Um, they're not depend you you know you can watch the weather channel you can watch weather nation you say well i got weather apps on my phone yeah but you're not pulling it into your business and making smarter decisions um streamlining your operations saving money based on the current weather and predicted weather so eris weather is growing we uh we have some amazing developers that are continuing to uh, expand the business and it's not just U.S. weather. We, we have global data, um, and we have businesses around the world that are signing up for that. So that's growing nicely. And that's where you spend your mornings, generally? Mornings, mornings are spent with, uh, with Eris Weather, which is, again, the data business, and Predictix. And we're based in Eden Prairie. Uh, Predictix is the, the analytical side of the business that is focused on meteorologists. And briefings, we believe, I believe that people, i.e. meteorologists, can add value that computers cannot. 
So whether it's doing media updates for the Star Tribune or Haystack, which is one of these new media companies that you can stream on on your phone or on your TV at home, uh, that people can provide perspective, context, analysis, mm-hmm. things that you can't get from an app. We're still relevant. There's still a purpose for I humans. Think there's, at least in the short term, Allison, yeah, yeah. I hope forever. I hope we can maintain an edge with a computer. Some days I wonder with artificial intelligence how smart these computers will get. Will they ever be able to give a better story Mm -hmm. uh, and personalized weather, perhaps? But so we have media. We also have Fortune 500 companies that don't like to be surprised by the weather. So we issue briefings days in advance. If Hmm. there's a blizzard, a hurricane, a flood, a tornado outbreak, they don't like to be surprised. And they they can't get that on their iPhone. They they will pay for that information from you. These bigger companies have hundreds, thousands of facilities, and they want to know in advance which facilities should they be preparing for for problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of a hurricane, that can be disruptive, you know, for weeks after a, a direct strike. But even a flood like the flood we had on the Mississippi this year set many companies back months. Uh, supply chains, transportation problems. So, yeah, predictics and also forensic. Uh, a lot of legal cases hinge on weather. Hmm. Can you prove that there was baseball size hail at this location, which caused damage to my client's townhouse? That's amazing. And, yeah, in the case of, uh, I mean, there were some issues with the new Viking Stadium was late and there was a good reason why it was late because we had a crazy 2014 but they had to be able to prove that legally in court that the weather transcended average and that the weather was truly remarkable right and so as a meteorologist again i i'm hoping there will always be a need for people to interpret the models and and tell a good story and have the weather make make some sense. What's so fascinating, though, is that, I mean, there are a lot of people who study the weather for a living. Why have you been so keen on spotting these business opportunities beyond television, beyond just giving a standard weather report? I think it's a glandular problem of some sort. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know. I, and trust me, there, there is nothing special. There's nothing unique about me. It is only uh, through the grace of God, good luck, good timing, and being able to surround myself with really smart people. I can't program. I have to go out and hire amazing programmers. What I can do is paint a picture and share a vision and get people excited about a new idea. And so I think any founder ultimately is at heart a salesman or a saleswoman Mm -hmm. who's Mm -hmm. painting a picture, selling a concept, selling a vision. And then if you surround yourself with people that are a lot smarter than you, you've got a shot, you've got a prayer. But you also, I, I think you have to bake flexibility into your business model because it never, ever, turns out exactly the way you think it's going to turn out. The businesses that survive, that cross that chasm of death, the valley of death, 
are the ones that can pivot and find a way to keep the lights on and make payroll and um, live to fight another day. But it's it's been it's been crazy. I mean, with with digital cyclone before we sold to Garmin, um, we had issues sometimes making payroll, another second mortgage on the house. Um, we came very close to declaring bankruptcy, which would have wiped out all 103 investors. Wow. Um, so we we were lucky. Um, at one point, we went from 55 down to five people, and we pivoted, and we said, look, we've, we have to find a sustainable model, if possible, a machine revenue model. And so... Even though we can do a slightly better job with accuracy, what people seem to be willing to pay for is the display, the experience. Put my location on my cell phone at the center of the universe, center of the map. I don't care about Twin Cities weather. I live in Wilmer. Put Wilmer at the center of the map. And in 2001, that was a revolutionary concept. Right. Right. Knowing what you know now about the direction and the turns and the pivots that your career has taken, would you do anything differently? Did TV somehow inform your entrepreneurial endeavors, vice versa, technology? Would you have just gone straight for the business opportunities and not had the TV career? No, I still, you know, I, I love the media. I, I love I love telling stories. And whether that story is in print, you know, with Star Tribune or on the radio, on CCO or on television over the years, I just I love the storytelling. I love the technology, being able to use uh, the computer graphics to help tell a story. So I, I don't think I would have done anything differently. Um, boy, that's a loaded question. What would I do differently? I think, you know, I probably would have taken more money and instead of plowing it right back into a business, would have done a better job of investing that money hmm. for my for retirement. Yeah, just for me. Mm -hmm. Because it, it's if you're a serial entrepreneur, it's like a fever. It's, it's, it's a, a sickness. Because you, how I imagine women must feel after childbirth, you, you develop amnesia. Well, that wasn't so bad. It's like you you forget about all the bad stuff that just happened. Mm -hmm. The bankruptcy, the uh, the sleepless nights. My my wife of thirty five years, a good Catholic girl. You know, she told me she goes divorce is off the table. Murder, however, is not <laughs> off the table. I will kill you if you, if you blow all our money. Um, so. I think I could have been a better steward. I mean, it, it's a little like gambling. You know, when you're winning, you think, oh, this this is easy. Let's just let's keep rolling the dice because there's always another idea. Right. Allison, there's always something new. So are you thinking about new ideas right now? Yes. In fact, I am. Really? <laughs> how, how soon should we expect to see the next Paul Douglas venture? Um, pretty quick. I mean, we're we're working on. Uh, a new business called Climate Trends, which is helping businesses uh, estimate 
calculate the impact of warming and more weather volatility, more weather disruptions on their supply chains, on their facilities. So we have all these climate models and the climate scientists, and they're sort of in their own silo. There's so much data, so much research. We think there's an opportunity to connect the dots for business and to help companies place bets that stand a better chance of paying off, reinvesting. You know, where do we build facilities? How do we retrofit facilities to be able to withstand more flooding, more intense heat, higher humidity levels, more volatility? Business is going to go on, but it's it's going to become more challenging across much of the country hmm. to get the same yields, whether you're a farmer, the same results from manufacturing. And so we sense that there's an opportunity to work with business uh, to help them. And also, sustainability is not a fad. It's, it's a trend. Younger people want to know what do you stand for? Right. Not just do you have a, a an interesting product. What do you stand for? And uh, I've been talking about climate change for 25 years publicly. I'm a conservative, but the data is the data. There's plenty of evidence. And I think every threat is an opportunity. We have to figure out how to keep the wheels on the bus, how to keep the economy rolling along and keep people employed and keep the economy growing while putting a lighter footprint on God's creation. As a Christian, I think we have an obligation to be stewards. Right. Creation care. So, you know, I've been talking to a lot of churches. I wrote a book with a Methodist minister geared to evangelicals focusing on why conservatives should not just poo-poo this and chalk this up as part of the liberal agenda. It's happening, and I think there are things we can do uh, to address this, to make everything we do climate resilient, flood-proof, um, heat-resistant. There's going to be an opportunity, and I think you know, there are two options. You can either sit back and say, well, there's nothing we can do. It's going to happen. Or you can take a stand and say, you know, there are some smart things, responsible steps you can take as individuals and as businesses to prepare for a warmer, wetter, stormier, more volatile future. Right, right. Well, I think we can all feel a little better knowing that you, Paul Douglas, are working on this. It's an amazing career that you've carved out for yourself. Thank you for sharing some of the highlights with us today. Stick around. We're going to go back to the classroom next with the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business. But Paul, just tell me, is it really going to be such a bad winter? Uh, you, you want to hear the official winter yes, forecast? Yes, yes. Okay, here it is. Ready? I'm ready. Colder with some snow. <laughs> when, when in doubt, obfuscate. No, it's like, it's like <laughs> predicting what the NASDAQ is going to be on February the 20th. We have no idea. And anybody who pretends... With all your tools. No, no, no. No, no. It's chaos theory. That, that far out with weather, it's random. No, nobody knows. Um, so, but don't panic. We'll get through it just fine.
Well, Paul Douglas was a, a successful broadcaster, had a great TV career before he went off and became an entrepreneur. He's such a good example of a serial entrepreneur leveraging that core knowledge and figuring out how to apply it to something else. How could you do that? Well, let's get some expert advice from our friends at the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Professor David Deeds is the Schultz Professor of Entrepreneurship, and I think think he has some thoughts about what Paul Douglas has accomplished. He's accomplished a lot. It's a great story. Um, and he's, he's been very successful. He's done what you see so many serial entrepreneurs do, which is leverage a core set of knowledge, a core skill and a capability. In this case, his understanding of, of meteorology and weather. Mm-hmm. And then what he's done, he's been able to do, is to marry it up with as technology advances to different kinds of applications, understanding the problems and the challenges. So first, he's really got his weatherman hat on. Right. And he sees the need for better graphics. And he sees these better graphics at this conference, and essentially it's laughed at trying to license it, and says, we can do this. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then he's moving on, and he and he and he sees a way to do better data, better analysis, etc. And he keeps playing with the data in different ways. So he goes to cell phones, he goes, you know, he goes to graphics, to cell phones, he goes to data, understanding that we've got a lot more data now, and now on to data analytics. So, but all the while, in the center of all of this. He's building off of and using that core knowledge. So he keeps looking for problems that his core knowledge, his core skills can be used to solve. So is that a mistake that some people make getting too far afield from what they really know? Do you need to have that core knowledge to be successful with a new venture? Well, let's say your odds are a lot higher Mm -hmm. if you have it. You know, you rarely see a serial entrepreneur that is walking a path of just completely divergent startups. We got a restaurant over here, we got a tech startup over here, et cetera. You'll see them under, leverage off of and move from um, you know, a core understanding of how small motors are evolving goes from goes from the spin pop sucker to the cheap four ninety nine electric toothbrush. Mm-hmm. So you see these evolutions that come out of understanding, a core understanding, and then different ways to apply it in tangential markets or or potentially different markets, but still that core. Right. And being able to leverage the assets you build up. So you build a design team, you build a set of programmers. I don't know for sure, but I would bet Paul has a group of programmers that have probably, at least some of, have probably followed him through right. two or three of these ventures. Yeah, I think that's true. So you true. build these core skills and these core team. And you keep leveraging it to solve new problems. And that's what we really learn yeah. from these serial entrepreneurs. So you don't necessarily have to be on TV, but you do need to take a minute to really think about what you really know yep. and where you can really put your expertise. Absolutely. Where you can apply it, where it is that you are better at things than the average person is, where you have a real advantage. And also, as you can see with Paul, where you have a passion. Right. It helps to have a passion. You know, when that when those checks are getting ready to bounce, having that passion also That's helps. <laughs> That's right. And keep your mother-in-law at bay, right? Be careful about mother-in-law money. <laughs> thank you, David. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts and take a minute to rate and review us. It really helps the show. I'm Allison Kaplan on behalf of Twin Cities Business. Thanks for listening to By All Means. Thank you.
takes teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Benita Sakar and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means. Thank you.